You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, we'll be in Matthew 28 this morning, starting in the 10th verse, and we'll read through the end of the book, which is verse 20 of chapter 28. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Then Jesus said to them, that is the women who saw him after his resurrection, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that now you would uh, open your word. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would show us beautiful things in your word. That we might be better uh, equipped to serve you and the mission that you have given to your church. So we ask, O oh Lord, for your help now because the task is too great for us by ourselves. Help us to see that you are the Savior of the world and we are simply uh, your people and your messengers, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is the most inspiring person you've ever known? Or who do you look to maybe in history, and you find, wow, that person, they really stir me. They, they make me want to be more than what I, I am. You know, they want me to rise above. They help me to want to rise above the day-to-day grind. You know, and the range could be anything. You know, I can remember when I was in middle school, I was inspired by certain basketball players like Pistol Pete or... Michael Jordan, you know, when I heard that Michael Jordan got cut from the high school team and then after that he was resolved to make the team so he got up every morning before school and he went and shot hoops and did drills at like something like five or six in the morning. I was like, oh, that's awesome. I'm going to do that. And I did that for three weeks. You know, six in the morning was pretty early for me. Uh, Or, you know, you might 
might open the, the vision wider, right, to maybe something beyond just basketball. You know, you might think of people who've done actual significant things like Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi, you know, people who've kind of taken on a large cause and persisted over years with tons of opposition. And usually, those are the people we find most, most inspiring because they have faced incredible hurdles and kept going. They kept going because they believed in something more than their own personal comfort, right? They, they thought that the world had a certain way that it ought to be, that there was a certain rightness about things. And so they pushed through. They lived by a higher standard than by what was coming at them and what was easy for them. There's actually a group of guys, they're called the Cambridge Seven. Uh, they're called the Cambridge Seven because they all seven, well, actually, technically all, six of them plus one, went to Cambridge University in England back in the 1800s. And in 1885, all of them were inspired by a guy by the name of Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor had gone to China because he was burdened by the souls that were being lost, people who didn't, haven't heard of Jesus. So he up and left and he went to China and started the China Inland Mission. And these Cambridge Seven were inspired by Hudson Taylor. And so all of them, definitely coming from very privileged families, they gave it up and they went. And it, and it caught the whole nation by surprise. They're like, wow. And, and actually for a while, these guys were going to churches and sorts of things just before they left to tell people about what they were doing, what Hudson Taylor was doing to spread the gospel. And so these guys kind of became legendary um, because of their giving themselves to a great cause as it was seen. Um, and as Christians, whether you realize it or not, as soon as you become a Christian, you're caught up in a great cause. You're caught up in the cause of Christ. You're caught up in the mission of Christ. And here in Matthew 28, I want us this morning, we exist as a church to enjoy, display, and share the redeeming grace of God. And so this morning, we're going to focus on that share part using Matthew 28. And I'd like to uh, ask four questions. Question number one is, what is the basis of this mission, the basis of this cause that Christ is sending us on? What is, question number two, what is the scope of this mission? Question number three, Will it be hard? Question number four. What is the motivation for this mission, for this cause? Those are the four questions that I would like to look at this morning. And one of the things I'd like to say is there's kind of two topics here that are kind of bouncing around between. One is missions and the other is evangelism. And in all cases, what we're going to say applies to both, but sometimes it'll feel like I'm talking about missions and sometimes it'll feel like I'm talking about evangelism. They're not to really be separated, but just know that there's, this topic is just huge and I'm trying to hit on a bunch of things uh, using one passage. So uh, bear with me and keep that in mind. So, uh, so what is the basis of this cause? What is... What is the foundation of this mission? Well, Jesus gives it in verse 18 of our passage. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
the basis of our mission, and remember, Jesus is making this statement after he has just risen from the dead. The basis of our mission is Jesus. His person, who he is, and what he's done. Namely, died and rose again. He's lived, he's suffered, he's died, he's risen. And one of the questions that naturally arises is, well, well, what kind of authority does he have? I mean, generally when someone rises from the dead, you're kind of going to listen to him. Um, people love to read books by people that have supposedly passed into uh, the afterlife and come back. Um, Jesus, uh, not, nonetheless. But actually, there's even more than just Jesus having some amazing experience of having died and risen again. He says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That's pretty delusional. If someone ever says that to you, you might want to run. But Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth given to him. And this authority is the authority of, of an ultimate king. And we know this not only because the whole book of Matthew has been talking about the kingdom of heaven, but actually this phrase, all authority has, has been given to me, is actually an echo. It's an echo back to Daniel chapter 7. And if you want to turn with me, you can turn in Daniel chapter 7, and we'll see how what Jesus, this echo is explained in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, and then I'm going to jump from 10 to verse 13. Daniel has a vision. He has this wild dream, and here's part of what he sees. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery. His throne, his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Now verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So you hear the same echo in Matthew 28. Was given to him dominion, a kingdom. Jesus has been given a kingdom he hasn't seized it. It's been given to him by God. So his kingly authority is given to him by God. And in fact, God, if you read the Bible, the Old Testament, God's the only one who can hand out kingdoms, actually. Listen to Psalm 22, verse 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And if you read, actually, in the book of Daniel, we're told that God gives kingdoms to even... Uh, um, not his people, foreign kings. God gives them authority. So here, Jesus is given authority. And if you actually remember Daniel's dream, he sees this, all these kind of mutant animals, these big creatures. 
uh, the kind of stuff you see in nightmares. And these are all representing different human kingdoms. And here the Son of Man comes up to this ancient of days, the great God, and he gives him the kingdom. And that is what Jesus is saying. He's saying the vision that Daniel has had, it's now fulfilled. I, I have the kingdom. I, I've received it. And I have authority over all of these kingdoms. All of these great beastly kingdoms are now going to come under me. And the other thing is, I mean, anybody who says that they have authority may or may not have authority. And, and children intuit this all the time. Give them a teacher, anything, and the teacher supposedly has authority unless they can enforce it, right? I don't know if you've ever had the experience of when you were in school and a substitute teacher came in, immediately the kids all are like, let's see if they can actually make this a school day or whether we can have recess all day. And they just give the teacher the hardest time. And some teachers are like doormats and it does become recess all day. And then there's those teachers, I can remember being like, whoa, this teacher will not put up with this. You know, I got my name on the board and I sat and shut up. Well, Jesus has unstoppable authority. He doesn't just have it in title, right? He's risen from the dead. Now, when you rise from the dead, there's not a whole lot of things that can stop you. Because the ultimate thing you can threaten anybody with is to kill him. You can't do that to Jesus. His authority is unstoppable. His kingdom is unstoppable. And so with that authority, he says to his disciples, go. Go into the world and share the gospel. And also with this authority, he's given us uh, uh, his message, right? We're just messengers. This means the church doesn't go and preach whatever we jolly well please. We don't get to make up what we tell the world. So whenever you are in a situation where you're sharing the gospel with a friend or a family member or coworker, you know there's moments where you'll feel pressure to sort of modify things. Be like, well, you know, it's not quite like that. I know it sounds like you need to give your whole life to Jesus or something like that, but it's, it's not quite like that. You, you, can't, you can't do that. And actually, that's kind of freeing. You can just tell them what Jesus told you to tell them. Here, here's what Jesus says. What do you think what Jesus says? It's not on you to make up some message and you're a messenger and you don't get to change it. So when the church preaches or when a Christian does evangelism, we do it in service to Christ. So in one sense, one of the joys of evangelism, one of the joys of missions is you serving Jesus, regardless of how that person will respond. You're just a servant. And you come with a servant's authority, but you're backed by the most powerful person in the universe, regardless of how people respond. And just as the Father, as we saw in John 17, sends the Son, the Father sends the Son, the Son now sends the church. We are now sent. We represent Christ in the world wherever we are. And every week, we are sent out into the world. Every week, we're sent out, and we have the opportunity to share Christ with whoever we encounter. As the Lord gives us opportunity in our families, in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, 
on the playground with our friends. And this, and actually, the question of Jesus' authority the, as the basis also raises the question of what's the scope? What's the scope of this mission? What's the scope of the cause that Jesus has? And it is massive. It's nothing short of the nations. He says, go to all the nations. And you can imagine that's slightly intimidating, especially if you think about our context, right? How many people are there? There's 11 disciples and maybe a few other people, right? It's not a lot of people. And the nations are quite big. So Jesus has a, has a massive hope for this mission. Go to the nations. And actually, this is not surprising if you actually look at Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, I'll read it again. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. The scope is the nations. Every single people group, every single nation, every single language. And this is one of the things as a church, when we think about sharing the redeeming grace of God, we want to have big hearts like Christ for the nations, for all peoples, making no distinctions. And it also means as a church that one of the things we want to regularly be doing is thinking, how do we strategically reach and help to reach all these peoples? There are so many peoples in the world. How, how do we accomplish this? And sometimes our imagination and our, our, our desires for the gospel are too small. Listen to Isaiah 49 verse 6. This is God speaking to his servant. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's too small for God. God is too big and Christ's authority is too grand for us to think small thoughts and for us to have small goals. Christ has authority and power and he will have the nations. He will succeed. And with regards to these nations, what's the scope of, of our going to them? Well, he tells us, Jesus tells us, it's to make disciples. Oftentimes we think, when we hear this passage, we think, just make converts. Just get people to say a sinner's prayer or something and say they love Jesus, and that's it. Just, just get them to change ever so slightly, right? But the actual word for disciple here actually means a lot more. It means a lot more than just kind of becoming like some quick and easy convert. To be a disciple is not only to learn the teachings of your, of your teacher, but to model them in every way in your lifestyle. So if you read through the book of Matthew... The book of Matthew, one of the themes is, is making disciples. What it looks like to become a disciple. 
And if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, the whole idea is not only that you know what he says or say, yeah, he's a good guy, but actually to walk after him. Disciples would follow their teacher around in day-to-day life. So one of the things that this also means is not only that we're to go and try to win people to Christ, at least, it means that we ourselves, as a church, are in the school of Christ. We are all trying ourselves to grow as disciples. So when we go to make disciples, it's a process that we are still in. We are still trying to also grow and be like Christ together. And we need each other because some of us are really good with book learning, right? We love, we'd love to study theology. We love to study the Bible. And some of us are a little bit more like, all right, we need to apply some of this stuff. I'm getting a little bit tired of looking at the books. Let's do something. Let's, let's actually follow Jesus. And we need to help each other. So this, this command to make disciples is not simply to go and get some converts, but it's the ongoing process for everybody in the church. You never graduate, unfortunately. Some of you were so glad when you graduated, you know, middle school, high school, college. It's not over. The diploma hasn't been given yet. We're all in this together, regardless of the different stages where we may be. And Christ wants all the nations, and he wants all the nations, they're all going to serve him. And actually, we could look at Matthew 28 in relation to Genesis chapter 1, but we're going to get into that. So, Uh, Keep that in mind that this great commission is actually going back to Genesis as well. We want to keep all of Christ's teaching. Now, one of the questions is, so Christ's scope of mission, the the cause is huge. And so another question is, well, is this going to be hard? And the short answer is yes. The scope is vast. Often our hearts are too small. So we need the Lord to help us. We are going to need the Lord to help us. But here are some of the things that seem to be clear challenges to this mission, to this cause. Well, first off, Christ wants us to go to all the nations. Now, I don't know if you've had any experience of crossing a cultural language barrier. It's not super easy. Going to the nations and bringing nations into the church is not easy. And if you look at church history for any period of 20 years, you realize that it is hard. It's hard to bring people that are different together and to be united. I mean, you think about your own families. The, the, a family unit is like one of the most homogenous, like-minded groups you'll ever find. And we all know that in our households, it's not like we all think the same and want to do all the same stuff. And imagine now when you expand it to people that speak all sorts of languages, different cultural practices, different values, and you're going to try to bring them under one roof, under one king. One of the things that's a political nightmare if you watch, if you like read history, is nations that have either accidentally or intentionally brought too many different people groups under one political rule, and those kingdoms struggle a lot. And here, Jesus is saying, I'm going to take them all. You can, you can bet that that's going to be difficult. And as a church, 
We want our heart to be open to the nations, but we, and, and not just open and like we want to welcome, but we want to have a heart that is patient with each other over the long haul. We want, as we're trying to be disciples of Jesus together, we need to be patient with each other and give lots of grace to each other. So that is one challenge from within, right? As we're going out, there's a challenge of just the sheer logistics of bringing people in. But there's another challenge. If you look at verses 11 through 15, one of the strangest things about Matthew is how it ends. It gives us two final stories. It gives us the last thing is Jesus' commissioned to the church, but then just before it, it tells us this story about the guards who were at Jesus' tomb and how they go to the religious leaders in Jerusalem and say, um, we didn't do our job. So when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. These guards actually saw something pretty crazy just happen and they're not about to just join the cause of Jesus. Not only that, they actually give testimony to Jesus' enemies that something kind of crazy just happened. We're not exactly sure. And they're like, well, here's another story. Notice not only do they come up with another story, they don't just simply be like, oh, you know what? Let's just, let's just join them. You know, if you can't kill them, join them. Doesn't seem to occur to them. Rather, they pull out their wallets and they say, here, they bribe them. Give them some money. Tell them a different story. And one of the things is, is that the world isn't going to be like, oh sure, we'll just join Jesus' cause. There are alternative stories. And the thing is, is that Jesus' power and authority will challenge other people's power and authority. And they will shell out money and all sorts of other things to make sure Jesus does not overturn their power. So there will be opposition to Jesus' mission. It won't be super easy. And in fact, if you look back at Daniel 7, when the Son of Man, the Son of Man character appears, there are all these crazy kingdoms symbolized by these mutant, brutal animals. Listen to this. Daniel sees, and he sees this vision of these beasts, and he says, know the truth about the fourth beast. He wants to know about beast number four, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes, and had a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So in Daniel's vision, the Son of Man and all the saints, God's people, are going to fight a battle. So the scope of the mission isn't going to be without resistance. And if you look at any amount of church history, you will see that people suffer for the cause of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. 
When Jesus instituted, this is the third thing that I think is difficult when you think about where we are today. When Jesus gave the initial mission, he has, you know, a dozen, two dozen people, and they've done some remarkable things. Today, there are now 7.8 billion people in the world. According to some measurements, 60% of those 7.8 people are considered reached. 40% of those people are not reached. There are 40% of people, and by unreached, it means that they're not really within even earshot of hearing about Christianity or Jesus. Of those 60% that are considered reached, 27% don't believe. It's not even clear whether they've actually heard the gospel. They're just considered to be within reach of hearing the gospel. And of that 60%, a large percent of those people, they might profess Christ, but they're considered nominal. It's just sort of a cultural thing. And of the 40%, there's almost 800 groups with over a million people in them that don't have any Christian anything. They don't have either enough Christians to help spread the gospel. They probably don't have a Bible in their language. So 40% of 7.8 billion is something like 3.12 billion people. Nothing. No access to Jesus. Most of those people live in the country that is today India or in the Muslim majority world. It's where most of these unreached people groups are. And for every 30 missionaries that go to reached people groups, there's one missionary that goes to the unreached. So the task is huge. And you look at the size of this room, you know, we're just about the same size when Jesus probably started the whole thing. And yet, how often do we give thought to reaching the nations? Here in Rapid City, actually, from 2000 to 2010, the, most, the largest religious affiliation that grew substantially in Rapid City was a group called the nuns, people that don't affiliate at all religiously. And it's by far the largest religious group in the city now. In a city that probably most people would say is Christian in some capacity, generically at least. So one of the questions then is, what's our motivation? There's all sorts of things that will motivate us, I think, for this cause. And I'd like to list a few because hopefully the Lord moves us by his spirit, to want to reach the nations. And not just the nations, but the people around us, our neighbors, our family, our friends, our co-workers. There's, there's a number of things. One motivator that's not explicitly here in this passage that's often used as a motivator is the fact that people will face the judgment of God. which often seems to be probably the most harsh thing about 
Christianity, right? How could God judge people? The truth of the matter is, is that God hates evil. I mean, who, in one sense, who doesn't hate evil? It's just that God hates all forms of evil. And he will judge all forms of evil. Every evil thing that we've done, God will deal with. And so there are lots of people that will face the wrath of God. That's, that's one motivator. Another motivator is that the world since our first parents is shot through with sin and misery. People do evil and, and people are miserable because of it. There's evil stuff that you've done, that I've done, and, and without exception, somebody suffers some sort of misery because of what you've done. And here's the thing, a lot of what we do, you can't take back. Time might heal a few wounds, but when you look at all the mess that is in the world, and you could just start listing things, and if you have trouble coming up with stuff, watch the news. And there's some really twisted stuff that happens in this world. And yet Christ is the answer to the sin and misery problem of humanity. Christ is the solution to the fact that people who are evil and unjust could actually be reconciled to God. Paul tells the Corinthian church that we are messengers of reconciliation, calling people back to God so that you don't have to face the wrath and so you can be healed and forgiven of the sins and the misery that you have perpetuated. So we want, we want God to stir in us a love for lost people, lost souls, and not to forget that we are no different. It's not somehow that we condescend to other people because we are perfect people and we're rescuing them out of their problems. No, Christ has rescued us and we just simply keep the ball rolling and tell them about what Jesus can do for them. It's not a, this, the message is not, hey, here's what we can do for you. We can make your life better. We're the church. No, Christ can make your life better and we're here to tell you about it. Christ's work, his death, teaching, resurrection, his ascension is the solution to all these problems. And it's completely sufficient. Can you imagine if you had to peddle a product that was only like half effective? You know, like, like, hey, here's this great vacuum cleaner. We, you know, our parents would occasionally, you know, have salespeople come into our home. And they're like, but it doesn't really work for that situation or for that situation or for that situation. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. That, it doesn't work for that. But you can't do that with Jesus. There isn't anything that Jesus isn't going to be able to address. He's completely sufficient for every single problem and issue people will face. The motivation of, say, hell, for example, this kind of like people are going to face the judgment of God is often used as like this massive sort of guilt trip. Like, oh man, I really need to do this. But I think that actually in our passage, there's an even greater, an even greater motivation. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
One of the beautiful things about the gospel is actually not simply that you can get forgiven of your sins, but that actually God himself, the most beautiful being in all of existence ever, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is love, at the heart of reality, Father, Son, and Spirit have always loved each other, is that they welcome every single human being into the fellowship with them. That the gospel presentation that we are giving is that we're beckoning people into the presence of God. We're getting to welcome people back to God. Not simply, oh, your guilt's cleared, you're fine. Your problems are gone. No, you, you get something much, much better than simply having your debts canceled. You're welcomed into the very presence of God is what we're offering what we've been offered. And I think that honestly, we struggle sometimes to be motivated to share the gospel because we struggle actually to enjoy God. We struggle to taste and see that God is so good because it's not hard to advertise for the best product or thing that you've experienced, right? Imagine when you've tasted of like this really great dish at a restaurant. It's not hard to go and tell people, man, you really need to try, I don't know. For me, it was like a California burrito. Like the fact that you can put French fries into a burrito was mind-blowing. And so I would tell people about it. But we have something much better. We have something much better. So part of our motivation is actually to work on and this is, goes back to our very first sermon in the series. We, we want to enjoy God more. Which actually, in some ways, is a lot harder than you might think. And some of us feel kind of bad that we don't love God more. And we don't love the nations more. So if you're feeling a little guilty, because I can tell you that I have had, in my own life, any number of situations where I just felt like, man, I don't care enough about evangelism. I don't care enough about missions. I have at least two suggestions for you. One is you could read stories about people that share the gospel or talk with people that share the gospel. This is a great book. This, is, this book is titled A Faith Worth Sharing by a guy by the name of Jack Miller who, it's just stories. If you like stories, they're really good stories. He tells one about he was in San Francisco in the 1950s. He had just become a Christian and he's like witnessing to everybody because his life was really hard and then he found Jesus and Jesus just made his life so much better and he's telling the gospel to all these people and one guy, he's like, some of the stories are really interesting. One guy who he was living with in this kind of like San Francisco dorm, he was like, hey, we should study the Bible together and this guy was a, a hardcore alcoholic. He was like, sure, let's do it sometime and then one night when the guy was drunk, he crashed into Jack's room at three in the morning, was like, let's do the Bible study. And he's like, he was totally freaked out. But he has all sorts of crazy stories. But one of the things is you realize that he was learning and growing as he was sharing Christ. And he was learning to delight in Christ. But here's one other thing. If you feel like you don't really care about the lost people or you're just struggling to have a heart for the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 9 in verses 35 through 38, you can look this up later if you want, but I'm going to read it to you. How do you cure a lack of desire to share the gospel? 
Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, so here's the solution, right? Jesus has moved by compassion, and he's giving us a tip. How do you care about the nations? He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. One of the ways that we can cure our lack of concern for those who need Christ, one is to enjoy God, and we enjoy God through prayer. But the other thing is when we pray for the nations, that's when God actually goes to work on our hearts. God actually works in our hearts to have that kind of compassion like Jesus. Because it's in prayer that God shapes us. It's in prayer that we spend time with him and we learn what God wants for other people. That God wants to reconcile the nations to himself. That God loves the nations and gave his son. It is through prayer that God actually can change our hearts. So if you feel discouraged or if you feel guilty, the solution is not to just start going and when you feel guilty to just witness. Pray. And here's one of the other things. is Actually, if you pray, Lord, give me an opportunity. Help me to love people. It's amazing. The Lord actually starts handing it to you. So let's pray as a church that we'd have a heart for the nations and that the Lord would start working in us to enjoy him more and want other people to do the same. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we confess that we don't have the same love that you have for the world. So often we're caught up in ourselves and we want Jesus just for ourselves. We want all sorts of benefits from Jesus, but we often struggle to want to share them. And sometimes, honestly, Father, we struggle to even know that we have so many blessings in Christ, so many good things. So I pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our vision, you'd open our hearts, you'd help us, you'd change us so that we really would long to see people from every tribe, tongue, people, language come to know you. And I pray, O oh Lord, that not only will we be a, a church where people regularly are sharing Christ with others, but we would also be the kind of church where we, um, we send people out to the nations, we send people out to some of these unreached peoples that have never heard of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in us because we cannot do it by ourselves. You know how small we are. I pray that we would have greater confidence in the power, the authority of Christ to actually complete this mission. Help us, O Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.